This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Welcome to Eagle Lev. Hey, thank you. So first of all, we'll, we'll introduce ourselves. I'm Ethan. This is Naor. Hello. Welcome to the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast. Check us out on Spotify. Subscribe. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our, our wonderful hosts, Soho House, Tel Aviv. So let's give them a round of applause. Yes. Thank you. And also International TLV Salon for organizing the event. Um, uh, so thank you to them as well. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Bring it yeah. on. So, um, about a month ago, in early November, several families of the hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th gathered in the Levinsky Wingate Academic Center for a special evening. Um, there was no agenda, no politicians, no diplomats. Just the families, a piano, and Igor Levit. Levit is a world-renowned pianist who's been described as one of the greatest musicians of his generation. He was born in a city called Gorky in the Soviet Union, I hope I pronounced it correctly, uh, to a Jewish family. In 1995, his family moved to Germany, where he lives today. Um, Igor is one of the most prominent young musicians in both Germany and, frankly, all, all around the world. After October 7th, as the war began and anti-Semitism uh, raged around the world, Igor was faced with the question, what can I, as a pianist, do for my people? And Igor's answer didn't come without risks. Igor Levitt won the silver medal at the 2005 Rubenstein competition and has graced concert halls and major classical musical festivals worldwide with his performances. His distinguished recordings, including the complete Beethoven sonatas and acclaimed albums, of varied compositions have garnered widespread praise. We are thrilled and honored to be joined by Igor Levitt on this live episode of the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast here at Soho House Tel Aviv. We'll be talking to Igor about his life, his career, and what the hell he's doing in Israel. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Igor. Great to be here. <clears throat> so I want to start by yesterday, I had uh, the privilege to see you live with the Philharmonic. And Maybe it's a very simple, simplistic question, but why, why do you, it, it was amazing to see you and uh, really once in a lifetime experience. Why do you play music? It's not that simple of a question, but I, let, me, let me try to build it up from the, let's say, the simplistic, simplistic field to the more serious one, the simple the simple answer is because probably I can't do anything else on that level. Um, I started at the age of three when um, someone asked me one day why or how did you start playing the piano and my very honest response was by crawling to the piano. There was music at home, there was you know music around me and I just crawled to the piano and I was you know a little, little chap and I couldn't reach the keyboard. And I think quite literally, I just did this. So I, you know, I couldn't reach the keyboard and I just pushed down the, pushed down the keys. And ever since I didn't stop. 
That's the simple answer. That's why I make music. Because I didn't stop. Um, the main reason for me to make music in general, and this is the more serious approach to this question, is, and I mean it from the very bottom of my heart, is you. I never made music because I wanted to, to do for myself. That was never the goal. Um, I wanted to do it for other people. I loved playing for other people. I mean, I was one of these weird nerd students who loved to play exams. Not because I love exams, but because I couldn't care less if I play for one person, for 20 people, for a jury of five, or for 2,000 people, as long as I played for people. And this belief that the very only reason for me to actually keep going is to do it for others has only been growing ever since. Mainly that's the reason. And of course I love music that comes sort of... You don't get the, bored. With the job description. No, honestly, no. I, I, I can honestly state that there were days and there still are where I am terribly annoyed by the industry my my job my, the requirements of you know the job i have to do but i can state that i strongly believe i have not played a single concert in my life where i was bored or anything alike at the moment when i was on stage not one there's something truly there's something i really love about making music you described you know, crawling up to the piano and, and pressing the keys and that being the first moment you remember sort of having an interaction with the piano. But that that moment happened, I'm assuming, in the Soviet Union. That's right. Do you remember growing up no. in the Soviet Union? I am very bad with the past. So I have to crush your conversation tactic here, this regarding, in this very moment. You don't remember anything? No, because I fundamentally... Well, what, one, of the, one of the answers to the question why I am so bad with memories is... I don't really care about the past. It's gone. Um, I am very, very focused on the now. Of course, I think about the tomorrow. Although I'm suspicious about the tomorrow, I don't really trust it. But I, mm -hmm. of course, I think about it. But the past is the past. I don't hold hold to it. So and and I don't I, I don't really remember a lot. So I know certain things from the past because. You know, they're written down or my parents will tell me about it or, yeah. But I don't feel these memories. But the basics of the piano, you studied there or no, in Germany? I, in, in, in Germany. I mean, I, I began learning how to, you know, to push the keys back in, uh, you know, let's say in Russia. But the real development, the education, the uh, growing up, was in Germany and in Central Europe. So I'm going to take you to the past again. Please try me. Grill um, me. There, there must have been a moment. I, I'm assuming, you know, you didn't become a world-renowned musician one bright, sunny day. No. There must have been a moment where you felt like things, you know, you, you overcame challenges, you stuck yes. with it, um, you know, spent thousands, tens of thousands yeah. of hours playing and failure after failure until you finally got to a place where you broke through. Do you remember kind of a, a turning point? There were several point? of those moments. But I think 
sort of the feeling of being on the right path. Because I'm not a goals person. I don't care about goals. I, I never, ever in my entire life wanted to reach a goal. I couldn't care less. I'm a process person and I start anew every single day. You know, I don't, I don't set myself, you know, like um, goals. Um, but the feeling of being on the right path is maybe, if at all, maybe seven, eight years old. So I have been playing all my life. But there were several events which, which you know, brought, brought me on the path I am right now. M mainly people, mainly, you know, colleagues or, or not colleagues. I met by accident. People who, who inspired me, people who um, shaped my ideas and shaped my thoughts. And so my inner empowerment was growing and growing. And I think at the age of maybe 26, 20, 26 27, I thought... Yeah, that's the path I want to walk on. Did you ever consider giving it up? Giving yes, up piano playing? 100%. But never because of music. Ever. But because of, because of what this job requires you to do. Yeah, there were moments when I was 17, I, I wanted to give it up. 100%. I was, I was annoyed to the, to the core by the university. I was in, I, it, it felt narrow and narrow-minded and boring and predictable and, and just wrong and i thought that's it i'll give it up and then by accident i would meet someone who lightened up my my inspiration again and then i kept going but there were several Wait, who was it i can give you a couple examples for example there was a there was a composer um who died a couple of years ago unfortunately at a very old age he was an american composer of polish origins um, by the name Frederick Shevsky. Frederick was a was a um, solitary figure. He was a he was very political. He was um, like a legendary figure in the in the music in the music world. He grew you know he was born in 1938 in Massachusetts. He grew up in the 70s in, in New York in the 60s with you know John Cage and Pete Seeger and and. and and these these guys like very political he considered himself being a communist though he never lived in a communist country he uh he wrote some incredible piano pieces the most famous one is a 60 minute long cycle variation cycle on one of the most famous political anthems which once you hear it all of you will know it it's the chilean el pueblo unido which became like the song of the people of Chile when they were rising up against Pinochet. And so he wrote this incredible cycle. I played the cycle very often. We became friends and his influence was essential to me. I did not turn, turn out to become a communist, but I did turn out to become a very politically engaged person. And he played a magnificent role in that. And so when I met him, I thought, Oh wow, that's exactly this 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 guy, this maverick who would, you know, just be honest about everything to such a brutal extent that he kind of ruined his own career. He is the very opposite of the narrow-minded predictability I I I I experienced, for example, in the university. And I thought, I can keep i can remain being a musician but i can surround myself with, with like fantastic people and that kept me going it's interesting because uh today you teach in a university 100 percent. Yeah? and so it's a uh, the the circle 
in my university. Yeah. And and, and ah, it is your, where you, it's okay. the very only it's so the very did, same thing. Yeah. Do would you, you say, implement? Would you say you're predictable? I'm completely boring <laughs> and predictable and build the road. No, I'm not. What did you implement? Like, what what do you do differently? Look, there are great colleagues in my school, but and and also I must say the feeling of the feeling that I had that my school was this and that. Part of the reasons was I was a an awful pain in the ass myself. So it, like it was not like they were bad, but it was also that they were bad. But I was bad too. Um, I don't know what I do differently, but I have a very simple approach. I have a very like the message I give to my students is very simple, which is you can quite literally do whatever you want. I will not tell you what you have to do because the day will come when you will leave the comfort of university. You will step out in this world and I've got news for you. Nobody's waiting for you out there. So you will have to be able to ground stand for what you believe in. And so I would like to, to, to empower you to do whatever you want. The only thing I would like to know, and this is where most of them fail, is why you do what you do. And the answer, well, because I feel like that, well, it's not enough because the world will eat your life. And so that's it. That's what I'm working with them on. Is If you would like to play this Beethoven sonata upside down, slow instead of fast, in major key instead of a minor key, play it with your nose, I literally don't care. Tell me, how did you reach this decision? That's when most of them fail. But that's when education and growing up and becoming a um, conscious person begins, what I believe in. And so that's, that's what I'm teaching them. And I enjoy it a great deal. You think it's possible to teach someone that? I mean, obviously you do because you're doing it. But how can, how can you teach someone? The... the answer is it's not. But if someone, and I give them the tools, and if someone is able to translate the tools and to, to morph them into their own tools, then this is someone who will survive in this world. But if, if you can't learn this, if you don't have the, the will to, to learn this, well, then I will, and I mean this also sincerely from the bottom of my heart because I love my students and whoever comes will be greeted with open arms then I will help you to understand that you should not make this your job. And I will help you to understand that by being as generous, as open, and as, um, you know, supportive as I can. So you're, you're there to sift out the bad talent. To tell no, them 90% don't, don't be a pianist. No, <laughs> I'm there to make them understand what is, awa what is awaiting them okay. once, again, the... Uh, um, the honeymoon is over. So, okay. Um, we have to get to the elephant in the room and, and, and uh, all lives in Israel and maybe Jewish lives all over the world changed on October 7th. And you found yourself also in this uh, tornado, in the storm, in the heart of the storm. And uh, first of all, where did the, 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 the event of October 7th uh, catch you? What do you remember from that day? October 7th, I was in Berlin. October 8th, I was on my way to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so the first week I spent 
alone in LA. How was it? Before I answer this, I have to um, make you make you aware of something which is very important to me. Um, I am, as as you probably already kind of noticed, um, I'm a fast talker, and I don't mince words, and I like to speak. Um, ever since this tragic day, um, I sometimes lose words. And so what, what happens occasionally is that I start speaking and then I stop. This is something I have never had before, have ever experienced before. And I, I'm still in the process of understanding why it is, what it is. And so to add that, um, how was it is a very um, ridiculous question to ask <laughs> because on so many levels, it was absolutely bizarre. Level one is it was absolutely horrific, full stop. Um, I have, we all have, but I'd like just to speak for myself. I have experienced as, a, as an observer several attacks on Jewish life. Just to name, to, to give you one example, there was a a horrific attempt by a neo-Nazi in Germany, in the city of Halle, to kill Jews. To do exactly what Hamas did on October 7th. And the only thing which pre pre uh, what do you say, prevented him from going into the synagogue and actually killing Jewish people was the stupid door which he couldn't open. That was the only... That was, that was what made the difference between the city of Halle and Very. the Nova Music Festival and several kibbutzim. Mm -hmm. It was a stupid door. But this event, and I'm constantly asking myself why it is, did not cause... Of course, because it didn't happen in the end. What it wasn't the turning point. That? It wasn't the turning point. It was... The turning point was, was for me to realize around October 10th or 11th that um, there was a mass killing of my people on Israeli soil. That's how I would tr translate that. Um, so for the first time, I felt attacked in my young life. I'm 36 years old. It was horrific. It was horrific because I was alone. There was a wonderful colleague of mine in LA, but basically I was alone. I tried to somehow to compensate the being alone I, I went to a synagogue now this was probably the fifth time in my entire life where i walked into a synagogue it, it's it's not my natural habitat right and it was beautiful but i i wouldn't know what to do with myself the other horrific level was then and this is i'm sure what you all experienced as well is to sit somewhere out there in the world alone and watching the world react how the world reacted from outside, right? So I would see my own country. I, I would see scenes in, my, in, in the city of Berlin where literally on day one, when there were still fights going on 
in the south of, south of Israel, celebrating what was happening there. So on social media, on TV? TV, social media, etc. Mm -hmm. Realizing that this, you know, some of these, some of the people there on the street were, you know, they were partly right, you know, what, what the right-wingers do, we all know. The, the Islamist, radical Islamist circles, that was, you know, we all know. That was shocking to see, but we all know that. Seeing partly, not too many, but just a few were enough. Seeing people I knew, people I thought were in my boat, or let's say people I thought I was in their boat. Joining the, them. Friends? No, I wouldn't call them friends, but acquaintances, some. Yeah, my friend, my, my, my circle of friends luckily remained very morally clear. Intact. 150%. Um, was really shocking, but what made it at the end most shocking was the bleak silence by the very majority of what I would call the middle of the society. And so this whole combination was really horrific and still very much is. Why were you surprised? Because I, I was a naive 36-year-old who grew up in a generation where I believed that when minorities join forces and claim that they join forces because every attack on every minority is equally horrific, which, by the way, I still very much believe. I thought that I, am a I belong to a generation where feeling lonely as a Jew in the world will not be part of my life. And I'm uh, finding myself waking up from a very painful, naive dream. Was that, was that loneliness part of the decision to, to come to Israel? Why, why ultimately did you decide to come here? I'm also constantly asking myself this question because I haven't <laughs> been in this country in eight years. Eight years? Eight years. It's not that I had a very, you know, very close relationship to Israel. But suddenly I just, I just knew that this is the place I would like to go to. And yeah, it's it's maybe it's it's probably part of it. It's I at fundamentally I wanted to go somewhere where I I wanted to go where my people are. As simple as that. And did you come straight from LA or did you come from Berlin? No, I went from LA to Vienna. I play, so so I was in the middle of the tour. Like these two two trips I I I I took to Israel, the first one four weeks ago, and this one are literally the only four, five days. So I was here two days a month ago, now three days. The only five free days I have in the middle of touring. So I couldn't come more often and, yeah. and I couldn't stay longer. But I went from LA to Vienna, from Vienna to Rome, from Rome to Milan and, and Turin. And, and then I had some concerts in Germany. And the last one was in Frankfurt. And the day after the Frankfurt gig, I, I just took a plane and, and flew to, and to came Tel Aviv. Yeah. Did it feel different coming back to Germany for the 100%. first time? 100%. How so? Well, because what I described to you. Yeah, but did you, did you feel it? You, it's one thing to see it on social media, but then boots on the ground, the experience is... No, be... I was not threatened. Uh, 
I have been threatened in with with death threats in Germany before, but it, it's like four years ago. And this that nothing to do with what was going on right now. Mm-hmm. Just walking in the street, you know. Nah, seeing... I'm not that kind of that kind of person. It's not like the smell of the air changed. Mm-hmm. But yes, it. I came back for sort of three and a half weeks after the incident, and uh, what felt different was myself rather than the city or the did you food. still feel home i yeah grill me bring it <laughs> <laughs> i'm not even i didn't even start yet oh i love it i could neither have neither neither did i um regarding my circle of friends yes okay regarding everything else The answer is, I'm not sure. Not as sure as you were. No, surely mm-hmm. not. So eventually, um, as, we, as we mentioned, you had uh, an evening with the families of some of the hostage victims of October 7th. Can you tell us how that came about? Uh, how did that so when even, I was in, how was that born? So, look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a very... Um, fearful or careful person in in many regards uh for example i just terminated my lease from my with my apartment of my apartment without having a new one that's just how i function um in germany giving up a lease is a a big deal many many weird things are a big deal in germany let's (laughs) let's just not talk about germany okay Uh, (laughs) um i booked a flight to tel aviv i booked a hotel here without knowing what I'm going to do here. All I knew is I would like to come here and play the piano anywhere. I couldn't care less if it's for one person or for, I don't care. I just booked my, my, my trip. Um, I reached out to Lahav Shani, who is the chief conductor of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, who I met only a couple of weeks earlier. Um, and I reached out to him and I said, Lahav, like, you you know you know people in Israel you know people who own a piano what what am I supposed to what can I do I'd like to come, and he connected me to the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra to the people working for the orchestra. Now the orchestra, at that time a month ago, was not allowed to perform, mm-hmm. and so the first answer was well, we can't do anything together because we can't play. And then I was insisting and I said, well, I don't care. I'm not here to play prestigious concerts with the orchestra. I'm here to push down keys for people. And so at first, they, there were many plans. There was a plan for me to go to Elat where, you know, displaced people, survivors were, didn't work out because of security reasons. There, was, there were other plans. And then they came up with a, an opportunity to play at a big hospital in Tel Aviv for wounded people, I immediately said yes. So now that was the first gig I planned to do. And then a day later, Lahav called me and said, I have a friend, he used to be, and I hope I'm right, kind of the chief of staff to Olmert, something like that. And he organized like a movement for families of abducted children, grandchildren, etc. He's trying to help them. He's trying to bring their stories to, you know, 
to bright light. He's connecting them with politicians all around the world. Would you be willing to, to go and play for them? And of course, immediately I said, yes, that's gig number two. And that was my first trip. I think I, for, I about a week ago, uh, met for the first time a mother of uh, a hostage. And I think for me, it was, it was mind changing. Uh, I think it kind of changed my perspective. Um, certainly. On, uh, Meaning in I, what way? Honestly, in, in internalizing and empathizing, I mean, of course it's horrific, but I think there's a difference between seeing and hearing the stories on television and hearing it firsthand from a mother who's right in front of you. Yeah. Um, and I think it made me more understanding and empathetic of the demand to do anything in our power to get them back, which, which I think is one of the things that's somewhat controversial in Israeli society today is, you know, how much should we do? How much should we risk? Pay. How much should we pay? Um, um, there's a pretty consensus that we should go far to get them back. But the, I think the question of how and how much is, is something. And for me, that was it, was, it was shattering in a sense to see a mother and to listen to her for 45 minutes and to understand, you know, the pain that she's going through. So I'm wondering when you met those families, you played for them, but then you met them, I'm assuming afterwards. Can you tell us about that experience? I how, can give you how it impacted you. I can just to, to picture the experience because I cannot possibly, I, I can't answer you the, the question in this way. I can't give you an answer like, oh, this changed my perspective because I just can't because the whole the whole experience is just, um, I'm lacking words for that. Now, I don't believe that there's anything in life which you cannot describe. You know, the Germans tend to, tend to, tend to use the word unbeschreiblich, which basically means undescribable. For example, you know, the, the undescribable events of Holocaust. And I'm like, Paul Celan described it, and Frank described it. Everything is describable. Everything is put in words. Just, just leave the kindergarten, right? It's just, just. So I don't like this term. I'm just not ready yet to fully grasp. But I can give you three. I can tell you about three experiences I've made, and this I think will picture my my experiences there. Moment number one: before the event started, I was standing in the you know, at the, at the, in the front of this little auditorium when an elder gentleman walked into the, to the auditorium who clearly was one of the family members. Now, he didn't know me, obviously. Why should he? So he also didn't know that I was the, the guy who was about to, you know, to play the piano. And he thought that I'm a journalist. And he approached me like a force of nature. It was really, it was really quite magnificent. Like the whole aura around this man was quite magnificent and he approached me and I'm sorry but I have to show this no worries and he walked oh, to me he grabbed my shoulder like very very strongly very forcefully and the first word he said was seven okay and so of course I asked him I said seven what and he said um Four grandchildren and three children. 
That was the second thing he said. And I've never seen a human face like that. Point blank. I've never seen a human face with this expression of the combination of absolute everything and absolute nothing. Like, he was filled with everything and left with nothing. That already, you know, kicked the carpet away under my feet. Experience number one. Experience number two... Um, so I played for them, and then the organizer asked me similar questions to what you were asking me. Why did you come? What do you think? What do you feel? Etc. Etc. And it felt so utterly silly, stupid, unacceptable, completely rubbish to actually talk about myself while these people were in the room. And so I refused to speak. And I basically would just, you know, just sit there and say, look, what, what, what can I, what can, could I possibly say about myself which would matter at all when you see 25 faces or 30 in the combination of everything and nothing? That was the first time I experienced that. But probably the most impactful thing I experienced had to do with music. Um, I was not the only musician to play or to make music on that stage. Um, there was a wonderful singer, but there was another one, a young, a very young, very gentle, very beautiful, very nice girl, Israeli girl, who sang. And she sang beautifully. What I didn't realize is that her brothers were, were gone. I just didn't know. I thought that she came as a, as a, you know, as a young musician to show her solidarity, like I did. Now, you all have to, 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 to realize, regardless of how I feel or what, what I express, I don't play with my own body. There's this wooden box standing next to me where I can quite literally bang my hands on. I can let out. My body can feel sick, but I can still play. I don't have to make my voice heard. I do not have to be entirely naked emotionally because I have this thing which I can touch. When I realized that this girl was one of the family members whose siblings were abducted, I just couldn't believe that she was able to actually use her own body to make music. And I told her that. That my admiration to her, that she was able to hold this wounded soul together and quite literally open her mouth and make it sound and not drop, drop on that stage. My admiration was limitless and I have probably never, ever, ever, and I've seen a couple of musicians, as you can imagine, ever seen anyone, any musician that brave as her. Full stop.
And so these are the three sort of most memorable emotional experiences I had on that day. How long did you play for them? 20, 25 minutes, half an hour, something like that. 20 minutes, 25. I'm, I'm sure I won't, or I'm not sure, but I'm very uh, likely won't, won't recognize the works. But what did you play for them? You can watch it. It's, I think it's even on YouTube, the whole, the whole event. Um, I played some Beethoven. I played some... Um... Look, I can't even remember what I played. <laughs> I, I, I played some Bach. I, no, no, I didn't. I honestly can't remember anymore what I played other than the, one. There was a movement of a Beethoven sonata and then there was something else. And do you remember their reactions? Like, did they, were they appreciative? Did one gentleman came to me and said that this was since October 7th, the first time where he would allow himself to be emotionally available. And so I guess maybe that leads to the next question, which is, what do you think is, you know, you mentioned um, the sort of informal anthem of the Chileans and the, their revolution against Pinochet. What do you think is the role of music in these kind of times? Um. Do, can you hear anything? The air conditioning. Exactly, you can't, right? Um, there is no such thing as music without musicians or without people who actually make music. I think we agree on that, right? I can hand you over my watch and you can touch it and hold it and possess it. I can't, you can't touch music. So I find I've always found, I mean, regardless of today's time or whatever, I find the question, what can music do understandable and yet somewhat misleading? Because there is no such thing as music without people. So the, 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 the question would be, to me, what can musicians do? And mo even more importantly, what can people do with music? And they can, they can do pretty damn a lot which is make other people not feel alone, for example. Or make themselves not feel alone, create togetherness, create emotional support, create... Well, you know what, that's it, and that's totally enough. That's more than enough to give emotional solace to people. What music cannot do, and musicians cannot do, and people who make music cannot do and will never be able to, is to actually save this, save this world. Let's put it this way. This is on us, the people, to do. Because music can be used as something tremendously beautiful, and music can be used as something incredibly dangerous. And the same song can be used in this way or the other. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't, we don't really, let's not go into this conversation, but being on Israeli soil, there is utter incredible uniqueness and beauty to Tristan and Isolde as an opera by Richard Wagner. And we all know that what other side is to this, the very same thing. 
which is this pig of a guy and the way this music was used and the and the narrative we create around it so music with all it is is fully fully dependent on what we make out of it one of the things you made out of it was you mentioned you went to uh, a hospital and played for wounded soldiers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I went to the hospital to play for wounded people. I went to two retirement homes today, one of them with many Holocaust survivors who some of them were in the South who were placed to this, to this place. I went to another retirement home today where many it was like a public retirement home where you know people are who could never afford going to a concert and i did for them at the end of the day exactly the same thing what i did for the for the family members which is probably compared to the drama they live through very little but maybe also not very little which is to give them a glimpse of solace for about an hour but there was there possibly something more invigorating about playing for the soul because you know when you're playing for families of hostages you're you're confronted with just loss let's put it this tragedy. way well let's put it this way when i am on stage of carnegie hall which i adore being it very rarely happens that i ask myself the question whether I will survive the next bar because I might just drop in tears. That rarely happens. And this happened today at least four times. And four weeks ago, at least four to five times. Yes, so, there is something very, there is an urgency and a vigor and, um, and a pain about it. That but is what, what I'm asking is, I think it's almost two sides of, the Jewish people, right? Meaning the hostages, they were taken, they were uh, brutalized, they were, you know, not the hostages, but there were many victims that were murdered. And then you went and played for soldiers who kind of embody us fighting back. We're no longer the Jewish people of, you know, pre-1948 being taken to the slaughter. These are people who were wounded but wounded in protecting the land of Israel. So I'm wondering if there was any sense of... No, because my, the, the project for me here is a solely humane one and not... A, it's, it's a humane thing for me. I wanted to play for the people. I couldn't care less what these people do. Okay. I, and that's why I couldn't care less. That's why I said I booked the flight and the hotel. I, I arranged the trip without knowing anything. Anything. I have not been back here since 2015. But I knew that I would come and I would find my way through. Like I, I would. I was today, I went to the square at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. Now for you all, this is the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. This is the square and you all know that family members are there and they... You know, they gather there. For me, the Tel Aviv Museum of Art is the venue of the Arthur Rubinstein Piano Competition. This is when I played, where I played round one and round two in 2005. I remember this being as this super exciting place where, you know, the 18-year-old chubby boy 
now I have to correct myself. The 18-year-old, very chubby boy, <laughs> played the first two rounds of the competition. To see this square, like I've, I've seen it today, was heartbreaking. And, and then I saw this piano on that very square. And out of 30 seconds, like let's say out of five minutes thinking about it for four minutes and 59 seconds, I thought I will not play. For one second, I thought, well, maybe I, I might play. But then there were two ladies and who, you know, one of them would play the piano and the other one would sing a song. So I, I didn't touch the piano. But I, I swear to God, if I, if I would have come to Tel Aviv without the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra support, I probably would have found this piano. And then I would have played on that piano. That's it. And then I would have gone home. So there was no... That, I didn't have a plan to play for survivors and soldiers and, and this or that. But I wanted to play for my people. That's, that's it. Um, before we get to some questions for, from you guys... There's one Where's one... your grilling? Rega. <laughs> Here it comes. Yeah, because it's not grilling. It's, it's just... I, I think it's the most... Uh, sensitive topic which is what's going on in Germany because you really put yourself in the spotlight oh, boy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> in the spotlight you for for, the, for you guys if you didn't see it ego uh, went really viral in a video you did with the vice um, Chancellor, uh, Chancellor yeah. of Germany uh, you walk around with him for seven minutes talk about anti-semitism talk about uh, what what what's been going on and that, that was a big, a big step for you, I guess, uh, like talking, standing up for, for Israel, for the Jewish people like that, especially since, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and you uh, also said something about it earlier, that the arts, the, you know, the, the arts, music, cultural scene in, in Germany is very prominently pro-Hamas. And there you stand, and it's, it, it could be a huge risk for you to make this step. So how, how did you go about it? How much time do we have? <laughs> Let me try a long monologue instead of a super long monologue. Okay. First of all, let me get, out, get one thing out of the way immediately. If someone believes... Are there... Are there, are there um, like uh, minors listening to this podcast? I don't think so. Oh, thank God. Not so so everybody, is 18 and, <laughs> everybody is 18 and older, right? Hopefully, yes. You promised. So this, yeah. is, this is on you. If, there's, if it's not, it's, it's your fault. Yeah. To quote a very problematic person, if, no, to somehow, somewhat quote a very problematic person, and you will, you will understand at the end who I'm talking about, a very problematic person. If there's anyone out there who thinks that what I do is risky, or let's say who thinks that I should lose something because what I do right now, he can, and here comes the, qu the quote, fuck himself. Like, big time. There's no, what risk am I taking? That someone will not invite me anymore? Fine. You know what, face it. Because, uh, you know, if, if this is the reason if this is the reason that, that to not give me a gig, you know, well, then shove your gig up your bum bum, number one. So there is no such thing as a risk I'm taking, and I strongly believe in it. There, a risk, I consider a risk to be something else. 
So that's that's just to get this out of the way. Um, so you're willing to pay any price? Quote not price. just that, but I am pretty sure that I will not, as of today, I can't say what's going to happen in 10 years. And we'll, we'll get, I'll get to that. Okay. There is no, I won't pay. What price am I, what price can I possibly pay? Again, that I lose a gig? Maybe you lose a home. Maybe I lose what? Your home. Because maybe someone will threaten me? No, because, because maybe you'll be, not officially, but you know, you'll be shown the way out of, of Germany. For maybe people like you don't have a place in Germany. Well, in then the if the day will come that I will show the way out of Germany, then Germany has a big problem. And this has nothing to do with me. But if a democracy, if anyone who believes in this democracy lets his own or her own country get to the point where a minority has to run, regardless of what minority, well, you better run. But maybe you don't need to run, but you could not just lose or a gig. Fly. You could lose, you could lose uh, your career. Meaning if you, and we'll get to whether or not you plan on making Aliyah, but uh, <laughs> if you don't plan on making Aliyah and you stay in, in Germany, then you could lose your I won't your lose my career. career. No? No. Okay. And I, and I don't even want to talk about that because I won't. There is such thing as, 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 as a market and an industry and audiences. And as long as people buy tickets... You kind of sound like, like Jews before 1939. Oh, you're on very slippery slope here. <laughs> No, but do, don't you think so? No. I mean, that's what Jews were saying up until the ghettos. No, no one is building concentration camps with gas chambers here. Let's not, let's not mix this up. Okay. And, and, and to get to the art world, there are, some of, uh, there are some people... Oh, thanks for building me that bridge. Uh, <laughs> there are some people... Some of them are, by the way, our people, who say very problematic things, in my opinion who are now here and there, also not everywhere, let's just, let's just state that, who are losing shows, right? There's, there's a whole conversation going on about that. There was a huge New York Times piece two weeks ago about that. And this piece literally ends with me because they, they called me and they asked me what, what, I'm, what is my opinion on... Um, now I almost told the joke here. Uh, what is my opinion on the arts cancellations? You know, like, like cancellations of certain artists, among them some Jewish artists. And to get more serious about losing a career, let me get more serious here, because I think this is fundamentally a real threat. Is the cowardness. Coward, cowardness? How do you say cowardness? Cowardice. Cowardice cowardice of some of these institutions. Do I believe in free speech? Oh yes, absolutely I do. And I am um, quite absolute about it. With certain red lines. Um, do I believe in the term cancel culture? I don't. I find the term to be very narrow and kind of at times really stupid. But I do very much believe in consequence culture. You are free to say whatever the heck you want to say, as long as you don't break, quite literally, you don't break the law. You have to face the consequence for what you're saying. Now, having said that, do I, f I find 
what some of these people, and I'm not even willing to call them out because I just don't want to, what they are saying about the state of Israel, about, about you know, uh, the state of the world today, I find it absolutely despicable and abhorrent. And I what are they saying, for example? Well, you know, uh, they're basically... These are the people who, in one variation or the other, just a couple of days after the slaughter of 1,200 or more Jewish people on this soil, started to talk about context, right? Mm. And then, you know, you know, uh, comparing, comparing the actions of the state of Israel to the actions of the Third Reich in Germany, stuff, stuff, stuff like that. I'm now very sim I'm very being very simplistic here. Because obviously things are not black and white. And it's not like everything these people say I find abhorrent, but many things these people say I find abhorrent. And these were the people whose shows were canceled? Yeah. Now, the way more important point for me, way more important, goes to indirectly to the question you asked whether I'm afraid for my career. The ones who run these institutions, and I am running a festival right now, at least a year ago, sometimes two, sometimes three, made the conscious decisions to invite these people for a show. Or in my world, I would say, invite these people to play a concert. They knew full well what these people say and think. And based on the fact that they probably believe that they still produce and they also produce great art, they gave them these shows. What changed after October 7th? Anti-Semitism? No. The, the, the cruelty of anti-Semitism changed after, in an abstract manner after October 7th? I don't think so. It was bad before, it's still bad. What changed? What changed is the climate. And now the same leaders of the same institutions, instead of facing their decisions, instead of doing what the cultural realm, in my opinion, is about, which is go toe-to-toe -to -toe and fight it out, debate it out, stand to what you decided and face it and debate it. With these people, they deserve to be debated. And the worse they are, the more they deserve to be debated. Instead of doing that, they do what German people often do, which is believe that if we polish a problem away, there is no such thing as a problem. We have a thing called um, Tupperware. How the heck do you translate Tupperware? It's basically like a plastic box and you put a piece of bread inside and it stays fresh. Mm -hmm. And you just pack it and put it in the shelf and you can pretend it's not there because mm -hmm. it's, it's all in order. Well, it's not in order just because you polish it away. And what I'm fundamentally afraid of, imagine in 10 years' time, 15 years, 20 years, 5 years, the climate changes to a degree that the cultural minister of Germany is a 10 years, is a representative of a Nazi party. And then these, these guys would call me and say, well, I know that I gave you a show like a year ago, but now the climate changed. I unfortunately have to get rid of you instead of debating it through. Now this I'm afraid of for my career. 
this is the point, their coward cowardice, that I actually am nervous about. This so, year. So ultimately, it sounds like you are worried that Germany could get to a place. I am worried that, look, any country can get to that place, but I don't live in any country, I live in this one. And yes, I am afraid if, if, if we don't have this debate about yeah, but Germany, their Germany has kind of a unique history, <laughs> to say the least. Don't about, you think about Atwell cowardice? Or what are you talking no, about? About, about, about their relationship with the Jews. Yes, so you don't think, I, I, what I'm asking, I guess, ultimately, is do you really believe that there's a place for Jews in Germany? Anyway? Yes, I do. You do? And, and, and in terms of the political response of my country these days, the political response has been, the majority of it has been pretty unequivocal compared to other countries around, around us. Yes, there is a place for Jewish people, but to quote a very dear friend of mine who happens to sit in this very room, and I hope I quote her right, is to be a Jew in Germany means to constantly say F you while you walk on the street. Because you're faced with, 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 with things you, you just see in all variations which just make you want to scream. But I do fundamentally believe that there is and there hopefully for a very long time will always be a space for Jewish people in Germany. But there is, as in every country, lots of space for anti-Semitism in my country. Lots. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. Um, it's fascinating to hear your perspective. Um, so thank you. Thank you for Igor Levit. And for standing and for standing up uh, with Israel in a very problematic climate. Absolutely, it's not obvious nowadays, Absolutely. unfortunately. Thank you so much. Thank you for Thanks coming. To you. Thank you. Thanks, Igor. Thanks. Bye -bye.